Well, we are continuing this morning in our study of the book of Acts, and uh, you can see that we are going to spend a lot of time in the book of Acts today. If you thought last week's sermon was long, this week's sermon is longer. Uh, We are in Acts chapter 21. We are going to begin in verse 17. And we are going to go all the way through Acts chapter 22. So, uh, that is Acts 21, verse 17, all the way through Acts 22. So we're, we're, going, we're going a ways. Uh, once again, Luke didn't really think too deeply about my needs or your needs. He was just telling a good story. And uh, so as we check out this next bit in our family story, it would probably be good just to remember where, where we're picking up. Paul has just arrived in Jerusalem. And uh, he has been told by the Spirit that it is going to be hard, that it is not going to go well. All of his friends have said, it is going to be hard. This is not going to go well. But Paul said, I have to go. Because regardless of whether or not it goes well for me, what really matters is my obedience to Christ. And what is God going to do with my obedience? How might God use it? And so that is where we pick up this story here at Acts 21, verse 17. It says, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs, What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses, so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood and the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when their days of purification would end, and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once 
took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Get rid of him! As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied, Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please, let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus, because that brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law, and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one, and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what, you, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when, the, and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him! He's not fit to live! As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? he asked. The man is a Roman citizen. 
the commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. This is God's word. What a story. What a story. This, this could be something on HBO. I mean, this is, this is some exciting stuff. And if you can, and see, when you read things like the book of Acts, you know, I would encourage you, try to put yourself in the shoes, right? Try to imagine the scene. Try to imagine what's happening here. You got Paul showing up knowing it's about to get real bad. And when he shows up, the church is so welcoming, right? Hey, here's the deal, buddy. We need you to go spend a whole bunch of money and uh, just kind of prove to us that you're an okay guy. And Paul says, okay, whatever, I'll do it. Um, and, and so he does. He, he goes through, he plays the nice politics, he does what he needs to do. And then what happens in the dusty streets of Jerusalem? He gets ganged up on, taken, mobbed, right? They're trying to tear him limb from limb. They want, they want to stone him. They are about to rid the earth of Paul. And, and then this, the Romans, seeing the riot, are like, oh, crap. Right? Because this is, this is not good. Because what, what did we learn earlier in the book of Acts? Rome does not like rioters. And the person in charge of Jerusalem did not want to be responsible to be overseeing a riot that he let just happen. So they come down, the, the soldiers come in, right? Can't, can't you picture them with the, you know, the, the brass plates, you know, chest plates, the flowing, flowing red, purple robes, their swords, their little, you know, those weird little Roman shields that I just think. What, what could they have done with those? Like, there are these little things. Like, really? You know? But here they come, you know, probably chomping, you know, running in, and they could probably hear the foot, the feet, right? The as they come in, and everyone kind of probably freaked out a little bit. Maybe the commander was on horseback. They get Paul. They take him into the barracks. They're, I mean, this, this was a, this was a scene. Whew. And we don't know how long this lasted. This could have been hours. This could have been that one of those deals where minutes felt like hours. But whew, the heart rates must have been high. The sweat must have been flowing. The, the rage must have just been palpable. This was quite a moment. And we need to allow our imaginations to run with this a little bit. But, as exciting as all that was, my job is to figure out how to preach this sermon to you. What am I supposed to say about this text? How does this apply to our lives? Right? There are a couple of different ways 
that we could have gone with I could go with this passage. You got you have this these amazing little details. Right? And see, this is this is an old preacher trick where you have a million different ways you go, so you're gonna go all the ways. So so a couple of these little tiny details we get, right? As Paul gets arrested, what does Luke tell us he does? He says he, he speaks to, to the centurion. And what's the centurion's response? You speak Greek? What? I just thought you were some, you know, Egyptian dude, right? He couldn't believe that Paul spoke Greek. It was like, mind-blowing. He spoke Greek. Well, yeah, man. Of course I do. Now let me let me speak to the crowd. Okay. So he gets up there, and Luke gives us another detail. He starts speaking Aramaic, and the whole crowd of Jews goes, "What? He speaks Aramaic? What is going on?" You see, every person Paul spoke to, he spoke in their heart language. He spoke their words. Their language. So we could talk about that. I, we could talk about that at length. And we've talked about that already in the story of the book of Acts, right? This idea of speaking heart language. You know, what is, what is our heart language? Now, in America, we all, for the most part, speak English as our primary language. But that's not necessarily our heart language. Maybe it's things like music, movies. We've talked about that before. So it's like, ah, we don't need to hit on that again. But of course I did, because, you know, this is what you learn to do in seminary. Um, I think there's this deeper thing going on here. I think what is so fascinating to me in this story is the beginning and the end. Right? In the beginning, you have Paul showing up to James and the leaders of the Jerusalem church. You would think. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, who has planted churches across the empire, would have been welcomed into the heart of the Christian faith with this overwhelming sense of joy, maybe even rock star status, right? I mean, this was Paul. This is the dude. This is, he's the man. And he shows up and you would think, they would be like, oh, Paul, I'm so glad you're here. Great work on the road. Here's a bottle of wine. Here's some hummus and pita. Sit down. Let's have a, let's eat, man. This is great. The Guys, Paul's here. No, we get, hey, Paul, a whole bunch of us Jews have converted to the faith. We're still very zealous for Moses. We hear that you're, that you're still out here hanging out with Gentiles. And uh, everybody here thinks that you're kind of a tool. So we really want you to go ahead and spend a lot of money and prove, prove the opposite. Prove you're one of us, pal. Okay. Paul, who was raised in Jerusalem. Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, trained under Gamaliel, one of the leading Pharisee, Pharisaic you know, scholars, he was a rock star. He is treated like just a loser. Basically, he's treated like an outsider. He's treated like a carpetbagger. He's treated like somebody who doesn't belong. Paul, we hear 
we hear all these stories about you. We think you're kind of awful. So go spend all this money. Show us. Buy your way back into our good graces. Prove to us that you aren't this awful, horrible person. Well, how's that for the body of Christ? How's that for the early church that we so love to put on a pedestal? Right? So many times say, oh, if we could just go back. You know, it was great in the first century. It was great in that first generation of Christians. Guys, the church has always been a mess. The church will always be a mess because the church is comprised of messy people. Yes, James, the guy who wrote one of the, one of the books of the New Testament, the brother of Jesus, he was kind of a tool. He probably wasn't the nicest fellow to be around. Paul shows up and he's like, yo, prove it, man. Show it to me. Show it to us. Show us the money. This was not, this was not a welcoming group of folks. How many churches these days are not welcoming groups of folks? You want to come be a part of us? Prove it. Prove it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the sign out front says all are welcome. You're welcome until you come in here. And then, and then prove it. Prove you deserve to sit in this pew. Prove that you clean up just the right way. Prove that you use the right words. Prove it. Prove it. The church has been messy from the beginning because we are a messy people. So Paul, but Paul says, yeah, for the sake of unity. Right? Elsewhere, Paul writes in Romans, right? He says, as far as, far as it concerns you, have peace with everybody, right? Make peace. As far as you can, make peace. Paul lived that out. Paul was like, all right, all right. I'll take what money I have. I will go do this thing. Because as far as it concerns me, I am going to try to make peace with these brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to, we're going to, I will do what I need to do. I'm going to try to make peace. And so he does. And then what happens? He gets mobbed. He gets mobbed because there are these folks who had, who had seen him hanging out with a Gentile. A horror of horrors. Seen him hanging out with them, and they're like, well, Paul, it's Paul. He definitely took him into the temple. He definitely defiled the temple with this dirty Gentile. Of course he did, because that's what Paul does. Paul's a traitor. Paul's the worst. So of course Paul would have defiled the temple. Paul, why would Paul defile it? That doesn't make any sense. Anyone that knew anything about Paul would know that Paul would never in a million years defile the temple. But you see, the problem is, is that Paul had gone around the world preaching that to be in Christ was no longer dependent on whether or not you worshipped at the temple, was no longer dependent whether or not you followed the food laws, was no longer dependent on whether or not you were circumcised. All these boundary markers that we talked about earlier in our study of the book of Acts Paul's been going around saying these things don't matter anymore. These aren't the, these aren't the conditions. 
Now it's about circumcision of the heart. Now it's about what happens inside of you. And so when people heard this, they were like, he's, he's no longer one of us. He has kicked us to the curb. He is a traitor to the faith. So of course, if he's hanging out with a Gentile, he has brought him into the, he has brought him into the temple. He has defiled the temple. He is an enemy of the faith. Because he's hanging out with those people, therefore he must be just as awful as those people are. Now to be sure, the Jewish people had reason to not trust Gentiles and the temple. Because when Rome sacked Jerusalem, they defiled the temple. They went in there and took gold and they did all kinds of bad things. You go back and you read about what took place when Jerusalem, you know, in, in 587, right? When, when, when Judah went into exile, what happened? The temple was destroyed. It was torn down. So yes, the Jewish people had reason to not trust the Gentiles and to think that maybe a traitor to their faith would have, would have intentionally defiled their temple. But that's not who Paul was. And so they mob him. And, and what, what does the church do? What do James and the boys do? They show up, right? They intercede on his behalf. They, they try to maybe smuggle him out of Jerusalem like we've seen in other places in Paul's story, right? They, they, they stand in between him, him and the Jewish people and say, no, don't, don't get him. And, and they, they try to get him out of there, right? They come in and defend him, right? Nope. They are nowhere to be seen. Outside of, hey, Paul, go spend some cash. We don't hear about the church anymore. We don't hear about the church. In, we don't hear about James and the fellas at the church in Jerusalem anymore. They didn't show up for Paul. They left him hanging. They left him high and dry. They, let, they, were, they were happy. I don't know if they were happy about it, but you know what? They sat there and went, yeah. See, we live here, Paul. We don't want any problems. We don't want the same to happen to us. So we're just going to stay over here. You take the hits, baby. The flaming arrows, they're all yours. You probably, probably shouldn't have been saying all that stuff out in the world. Right? They let him to the wolves. They just left him. Just left him. That, as I studied this passage, that shocked me so much because as we, when we think about the early church and we think about these stories in the book of Acts, so often our, my thoughts just go to the, those other cities, right? Those other places where Paul had planted churches and people took the hits for Paul. People stepped in between Paul and the mobs. People got wind of what was going on with the mobs and said, oh, we can't let this happen to Paul. Let's get him out of here. We'll sneak him out. We'll throw him in a basket and get him over the wall. We'll get him out of town. We'll get him out of Dodge. We'll save him. Even at great risk to ourselves. But the church in Jerusalem did nothing. From what we can tell, the church in Jerusalem stood by and watched. In effect, holding the cloaks of those who are going to murder Paul. 
Because let's be clear, that's where this was going. Now, what had Paul done? What had Paul done to deserve this? Nothing. Nothing. Paul had gone and had paid the price. He had literally, literally paid the price. He had paid the money for these vows of purification. And he was just doing what any good Jew would do on any given day. He was at the temple worshiping. That is what Paul is guilty of. Showing up in the temple to worship his God. Sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? And he was going to be stoned. He was going to be stoned on rumors and innuendos. He was going to be stoned because some people didn't like him very much. They didn't like what he had to say, so he was going to be stoned. Torn limb from limb by a mob. And the church was silent. How does Paul get saved out of this jam? Well, if we were writing a movie or tell, putting this in a TV show, the episode would end. And it would say in a black screen with white letters, to be continued. And we'd all be angry. And the millennials would be like, why is there no next episode? This isn't Netflix. What's going on? This is why we want everything released all at the same time, waiting for a week. No. But you know what? We'd all go back to our water coolers at work or the, the, the break room or the teacher's room. And we'd sit around and talk. Oh, can you believe it happened on the show? Oh, my God. Yeah, so great. And we'd, we'd all have our theories. What's going to happen? Surely James is going to show up. Right? Surely James is going to show up. Surely someone's going to show up. Someone did show up. The Romans. The Romans showed up. The Legion showed up. The guys who were the oppressors. The bad guys. There is really nowhere in the entire Bible that you read about Rome being the good guys. They were bad guys. If you take a world history class, guess what you find out about Rome? They were the bad guys. Rome has pretty much always been the bad guys. When you read in the book of Revelation about Babylon, they're talking, he's talking about Rome. Because Rome is the bad guys. They went out, they conquered nations, they destroyed people's lives. Rome, Rome wasn't great. The Roman Empire was kind of awful, kind of violent, kind of terrible. Unless you were Roman, then they were great. They were wonderful. Breads and circuses, let's go. But here they show up. They step in and they save Paul's life. The Roman centurions show up and save Paul from the mob. They step in. This is, this is crazy. This is a complete flipping of the script. Wait a minute. You're telling me the bad guys are the heroes of the story? Yep, the bad guys are the heroes of the story. The bad guys step in and stop Paul 
from being murdered. You see, justice, justice came in this moment from those people. Not, not the church, not the Jewish people, those people, the dirty Gentiles, the oppressors, the awful, awful people. How does that work? How does that work? How does it work that those people, the enemies of the faith, how does it work that they are the ones that bring justice? Because there's something going on below the surface. There's always more to the story. There's always more to the story. Who's missing from the story? What character has not shown up in this story? God. God. Where's God? Where is God in this story? God's not mentioned. God doesn't show up. God, God is not overtly talked about in this story. But wait a minute, this is the Bible. Yeah, this is the Bible. And it's telling a story in real life. Guess what? You don't necessarily see God all the time. But you know what? When unexpected justice shows up, it is because God was at work. God is at work beneath the surface. God is at work in the details of the story. God is at work doing all kinds of things that we can't see. And at just the right moment, those people show up and they bring justice. Those people show up and make sure that Paul doesn't get torn limb from limb by his own people. Why? Because God is at work. God is, God is behind the scenes. God is doing the things that God does. He is at work not just in the church. Actually, it kind of seems like maybe the church potentially was ignoring God. Not through God's people, the, the Jewish people. They also seem to be doing the opposite of God's work in this moment. But through the enemies, those people, the bad guys, God moves them to bring justice. Crazy. It's crazy. But this is what God does. God is always at work. Even when we can't see it, even when things seem grim, even when it seems like there is no shot that something good can come out of this, God is at work. And God brings unexpected justice from unexpected people and places. It is wild. Can, can you imagine what must have been running through Paul's head? Right? Wow. Here's the divine being working, working through Rome. It's crazy. It's crazy. You know what, gang? This is how God works in our lives today. We can look around and there are times in our lives when, when things just seem kind of hopeless. When it's, you kind of look around and go, I just don't know. Guess what? 
Unexpected justice is probably going to come from an unexpected place because God is always at work. When we look at this, as I read this story and as I have thought about this story all week long, trying to figure out how the heck do I preach it, it is this thing that just keeps coming back to me over and over and over again, that God is always at work. God is always moving behind the scenes. God is always doing God things. And God is going to show up in unexpected places through unexpected people. And so my challenge to you this week is, is, to, is to look back. Look back on your life. Take some inventory. When did you see God show up in an unexpected place? Or through an unexpected person? Or through an unexpected circumstance? Things that you never would have, you never would have in a million years dreamed that God would have worked through, except for the fact that God did indeed Work through it. Take a minute. Take some time and really ask yourself that question. Do the inventory. As I did some of that inventory this, at the end of this week, it, it, it leaves you overwhelmed with gratitude. It leaves you overwhelmed by God's grace and His mercy. And it is this reminder that as we walk through life, that we are never without hope. That hope is always, always something that we can grip onto. We can hold onto it in the face of darkest moments and of those dark nights. Because God is going to use unexpected people in unexpected places, in unexpected ways, in unexpected circumstances. Because our God is always at work. And we need to remember that. And we remember that by looking back and taking the inventory. God, where have you worked in unexpected ways, through unexpected people and unexpected circumstances? Remarkable things. And that, that is what will help us hold on to hope. I think it's stories like this in Paul's life that helped him to finish, that helped him keep going. Because this it's just getting worse. Y'all think this might be the bottom of the barrel for Paul's life? Guys, it's getting worse. But you know what we're going to keep seeing over and over and over again? God at work through unexpected people and unexpected places and unexpected circumstances and unexpected ways. It is going to be fun. These next four or five chapters, it just ramps up and it's going to get fun. And, and we get to see God do some cool stuff. And you know what? It's our lives too. We're just getting ramped up. Re regardless of how old you are or where you're at in your life, it's just getting ramped up. God, these next few chapters, they're going to get exciting. Because God is going to show up in your life and do unexpected things in unexpected ways through unexpected circumstances and unexpected people. And it is going to be a whole lot of fun. We just need the eyes to see it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You that You work through unexpected people in unexpected ways and unexpected circumstances.
even, even Romans, those dirty others, those awful, evil oppressors, you work through them. Might you also show us the places in our lives where you show up in unexpected ways, unexpected places, and unexpected circumstances through unexpected people. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.